Welcome to the Issues on Appeal podcast. I'm your host, Dwayne Diker. This is episode 14, Amicus Briefs. Thanks for joining me. This week's show is again sponsored by Commercial Surety Bond Agency, the nation's leading surety agency specializing in supersedious bonds. More about CSBA later in the show. Our topic this week is Amicus Briefs. My guest is Brian Gowdy, a board-certified appellate attorney and principal at Creed and Gowdy in Jacksonville. My discussion with Brian is coming up next. So, Brian, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Sure. Uh, you are a you're a board certified appellate specialist, and you're a partner at Creed and Gowdy in Jacksonville. How would you describe your practice? Uh, well, we are an, we do appeals, lots of appeals. Um, and we'll do any type of appeal. Uh, you know, it could be a criminal case, civil case, family law, administrative law. Do- doesn't really matter if it's in the appellate court. And then we also spend uh, a fair amount of time uh, assisting trial lawyers uh, in the trial court on the issues that are likely to be appealed. So, for example, a summary judgment motion or perhaps the jury instructions or the, the legal issues. We've, we, we found that it, it helps uh, to get involved early in the case before the appeal to make sure it's properly uh, prepared for the appeal. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, in, in looking through your, your biography, and there'll, there'll be links to that in the show materials, but I think it's worth noting that uh, you have argued a couple cases at the U.S. Supreme Court, right? I've only argued one case in the U.S. Supreme Court, but I have well, I have argued there once uh, in a case called Graham v. Florida. I've also done uh, uh, a lot of petition for cert briefing in the, in the U.S. Supreme Court um, as well. But as far as um, you know, orally arguing a case, I've done that once. Right. I don't know if uh, you and I haven't talked about it, but I, I got a chance a couple months ago to go up to the court and sit at council table and sort of be there for an argument. Uh, we had co-counsel at Gibson Dunn who handled the argument, but it was uh, it was a great experience. I, I loved it, and I, I look forward to the time where I can get back and actually be the guy making the argument. Oh, yeah, that, it is a fun experience, and, uh, and as you know, you get, you're really close to the justices, so it's kind of an – it's a – it's, it's a very um, uh, it's amazing how close you are to them during the argument. They actually seem like real people when you're that close. They do. <laughs> they do. So now on the podcast, I've had some requests to talk about the topic of amicus briefs, and I know that this is an area that you had some expertise in, and uh, asked you if you're willing to come on the show and, and talk about this with us a little bit. One of the first things I want to ask you is how do you pronounce amicus? Because I've heard amicus, I've heard amicus, and then in doing some research for the show, I found another pronunciation on the Merriam-Webster uh, website, which is amicus, which I've never heard a lawyer say. But but how do you say it? Uh, I think I usually just say amicus, so that's probably incorrect. I'm guessing my Latin is not the proper pronunciation now that you brought it up. I haven't I – haven't uh, looked it looked it up like you have, but I think well, I, I usually I, say I think I usually say amicus, 
Yeah, I mean, I think that there are alternative pronunciations. I, I don't think any of them are wrong. I think it's just, uh, it is funny that it seems to be a word that's pronounced a lot of different ways. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I think that's that's right. That's a, a problem with Latin. None of us really know how to say it correctly, probably. <laughs> so. That's right. So, well, let's start with the, the, the basic question, which what exactly is an amicus brief? Well, uh, it's... It's supposed to be a friend of the court brief, meaning that you're not an interested party so much that uh, that and you're just trying to assist the court. Um, that's probably the lofty ideal. The reality is that often uh, the the entities or individuals filing amicus briefs do have some interest in the outcome of the case. They may not. They're not parties to the case. They're not directly uh, impacted by the outcome of the case. But insofar as the appellate court's opinion will set precedent, it'll it'll impact uh, the amicus, and therefore they want to have a say in in the uh, in the process, and they try to uh, make an argument to the court. Um, so that's that's. Uh, that's generally what it is. It's not a party, but it's someone who has uh, some some type of interest, maybe not a financial interest, but some type of interest in the case and wants to uh, have their say in, in how it's decided. And I guess ideally, or I don't want to put a value judgment on it, but typically I think we think of organizations like industry organizations that have some interest in how the law develops that, that may be, like, as you say, not, not directly related to a dispute. Is, is that sort of your typical uh, amicus type uh, party? I think it's certainly more typical to have an organization uh, be an amicus, but that's not required under the rule. Uh, and there can be actually effective amicus briefs written by individuals, um, some common examples, you'll see this more in the U.S. Supreme Court, maybe than in lower appellate courts, but uh, you can have a group of law professors who are an expert in a particular area of the law. Uh, they'll file amicus briefs. Um, you could have uh, former government officials uh, who aren't aren't associated any any longer with any type of particular agency or organization, but because of their past experience, they might have some insights. You know, for example, um, I think, uh, you know, it's been common. One example I know in a Supreme Court case was a bunch of former military officers, right? So, and then, um, so you, you can have, you can have individuals. There's lots of examples of that. Um, I think the, an organization might be able to speak with more authority. For example, uh, if you had a, a case dealing with some type of medical issue and the American Medical Association filed a brief, that, that might get a certain weight because of the because that organization uh, what they represent. Right, right. I know strategically there are times when like sometimes the the amicus request is more uh, organic, where they, they learn of the case and, and want to intervene. But I, I've also been in situations where I have clients who are sort of looking to recruit amicus uh, input. 
have you have you seen that as well? Yes, yeah. So I think you know, really, the discussion about amicus briefs has to come from two different angles. One is when you're representing a party in the litigation, and how do you want to uh, help encourage or discourage participation by amicus uh, amici? And then uh, the other angle is you're actually representing a non-party, whether it's an organization or perhaps an individual who will be impacted by the outcome of the case, and you want to, to get involved. And so I think there's that's, that's kind of your starting point for thinking about how amicus briefs work. Sometimes as a party, you're not going to want to brief an amicus brief, and sometimes you would like some and you'll go out and recruit them. Um, well, and so well, let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, what, what sort of factors influence your decision? You're representing a party. What sort of factors influence your decision as to whether or not you think, uh, uh, amicus briefs would be helpful? Well, so I think, um, the, the threshold thing to think about is if, are you in a court like the Florida Supreme court or the U S Supreme court, where you have to convince the court to first accept your case, right? So you 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 you're you're having to to get you're having to actually get into the courthouse, so to speak. Um, and that's true in the Florida Supreme Court, and that's true in the United States Supreme Court, as opposed to in a uh, intermediate appellate court like the Florida District Court of Appeal or a Federal Circuit Court of Appeal, you have an automatic right of appeal, right? And you're going to be there no matter what. And so the reason I bring that up is is if you're trying to get into the courthouse uh, and you're the petitioner or the appellant trying to get your case accepted by one of those Supreme Courts, it can be a big help if you have outside organizations file something indicating the case is important. It gets assistance. So I think it, so that, so clearly anytime you're in one of those situations going to a Supreme Court, um, in, and you're at the jurisdictional stage, um, you, you could be helped by any, almost any, any amici, uh, uh, participation, uh, because they get attention of the court. On the flip side, if you were the winner in the lower appellate court, um, uh, so if you, for example, won in the district court of appeal, and your uh, your opponent is trying to get the Florida Supreme Court to accept review. Uh, you don't want amicus participation. You want to make mm-hmm. it look like this is mm-hmm. not a big deal. This is nobody cares, right? <laughs> yeah, this is just yeah. a garden variety case. Why are, you don't need to get involved, right? So, so that's the threshold. And then anyway, and so that's and then the next step, obviously, is if you are in the courthouse. Um, and of course, like I said, with the intermediate appellate court, you're generally going to be in the courthouse as a matter of right. It's not a discretionary appeal. Uh, then, then, then you, uh, I think, I, I think generally the same rule applies. If you're the appellant and you're probably more likely to want to have an amicus brief, I wouldn't say that's always true. But if you, you know, if you see that this, you, if you want to try to demonstrate to the appellate court that the district, or I'm sorry, the, the trial court's ruling, if uh, mistake, if uh, allowed to be followed, is going to have this great harmful impact, well, then you probably need a non-party to come in and say that. Um, uh, on, on the flip side, if you won in the trial court, 
you don't want to make the trial court's decision seem to be very significant. You want to just say, hey, it's a narrow holding. It just applies to the facts of this case. It's really not a big deal. And so I think you would be less inclined when you're the appellee, when you're defending the trial court's ruling to have a, have a, uh, amicus brief. That said, if you get into a case and it's clear that it is of significant, uh, importance beyond just your case. And if you see the appellant already has amicus lined up, then you probably, you know, you can't just bury your head in the sand and ignore right. the importance of the case. So you as the appellee probably want to line up some, some amicus. Right. To just sort of, if it's inevitable at that point, uh, then maybe you need to try and get some balance. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So I think it's, I think it's important because I, I, I I recently was involved in a case where the other side did, the appellant had an amicus. Um, it was some state actors who were coming in as an amicus. And we we did not recruit any amicus, didn't want to have any come in, because we want to portray the lower court's holding as just being about the particular facts of this case and not having any broader importance. So, So even when the other side has an amicus, um, you, you, sometimes you're not you're you're not going to want it if if your strategy as the party is just to try to say, look, this is this is a one of a kind case, and it's nothing really important about it, and you don't want to you don't want to feed it, you don't want to you don't want to take the bait is what I would call it from the appellant who's trying to make it an, an important case. Right. Well, you you can't lose sight of the big picture. Uh, as to the importance of the issue. Yeah, I mean, you got to be—you just got to be intellectually honest and sincere in your analysis, right? If if it clearly is a big issue and it clearly is an issue of you know great and first importance, then uh, you know you, you need to just face that and probably see if you can get some amicus support. No, all that makes a lot of sense. Now, what about uh, if you are not a party? Someone is coming to you to represent them as you know, truly, truly an amicus brief. Somebody who's not necessarily affiliated with the right. either of the parties. What, what sort of factors do you look at? As what what types of cases is that money well spent? I mean, are there are there cases that are better than others? Yeah, I think yes. Uh, I think the first thing you need to ask your uh, amicus client is what is, you know, what is your goal here? Is your goal to ensure that, you know, party A or party B wins the case? Or is your goal to urge the court to rule more narrowly so as not to impact your interests, right? Not to issue a broad holding. Um, uh, what, you know, and you, so that, that's, and there could be several other uh, scenarios, but you really got to sit down and ask the amicus, the actual organization or the individuals, what is it you hope to accomplish? And then you, then you need to factor in is, are you, are you going to, are you going to, is your participation going to help it? Right. I mean, you got to be candid with your organizational client or the individuals. Like you, sometimes it may be that appearing as an amicus will actually hurt the party you're trying to support, right? And then you need to say, hey, maybe you should sit this one out. Uh, so um, 
but I think the big, the big, the big overall picture is asking the amicus client, what is your goal? What do you hope to accomplish? And then figuring out the best way to do that. Dealing with clients is always about managing expectations, right? The communication, right. what is it that you really want and, and giving them some, you know, analysis of whether that's an achievable goal or not, right? Yeah. And so I think another thing too, right, is um, this gets talked about a lot. You don't want amicus briefs that are, quote, me too briefs that just say what the parties say. So I think one thing is an, if you're looking at coming into a case as an amicus, you kind of want to size up the, uh, the, the lawyers who are handling the case for the party that you are supporting. If you think they're going to make a, a good, solid presentation, they're going to write a good brief, um, they're going to make the right arguments, then maybe you shouldn't say anything. Let them do their job and stay out of the way. Right. On the other side, on the other hand, if you look at the the team handling the case for the party you support and you're very fearful that they're going to not make very good arguments or overlook arguments or, or whatever it may be, then your client, your amicus client may want to jump in to try to to help them to supplement the briefing. And um, that's just sort of a, a judgment call. And, and frankly, it requires you to evaluate the lawyer handling the case for the party. Yeah, and and would you be on? Would you be beyond giving the lawyer a call and talking to them about the issues that they're going to raise and that sort of thing? I mean, that seems like that might be a fair if they're willing to talk to you about it to see see oh, what I, their plan I, is. I think generally, yeah. If you're coming in as an amicus, you, you well, first of all, you have to you, you're going to have to ask the lawyers for both sides whether they consent. Sure. Uh, to the filing of the amicus brief because you're going to want to represent that position in the in the whatever court you're in. So you're going to have to give them some type of phone call. Uh, and for the party you're supporting, I think you definitely want to talk to them because you might be able to you might be able to help shape that lawyer's argument. Because the reality is that the the the, the most read brief or briefs in the case are going to be the party's briefs, right? You don't really know how much the judges and their law clerks are going to read of the amicus briefs. You know, people, we, we all have only 24 hours in a day. And, you know, some of these U.S. Supreme Court cases right now, for example, they have like 100 amicus briefs filed mm-hmm. in them. You, you, you know, <laughs> so you, you, you would assume that justices are going to read – uh, you know they're going to read the party's briefs, but they're probably not going to read all 100 amicus briefs. Right. <laughs> so if you can get to the lawyer who's representing the, the party and, and, and help shape his or her ideals on what to put in that brief, that's really better than, than you doing a separate amicus brief that might not be closely read. Uh, and so that's – you should definitely call the lawyer with – with whom you're uh, supporting. Plus, you know, you want to know about the facts of the case. You weren't involved. Uh, you, you, you may have limited access to the record. There may be parts of the record that are sealed. Uh, so, you know, you, they're going to be more familiar with the facts, which are still important in, a, in an amicus case. Yeah, and if you work with that lawyer and if they're willing to do that, and presumably they will be if they're, you're working in their favor, it kind of gives you an opportunity to make sure that your briefs um, sort of mesh together, right, and are not inconsistent and complement each other. I mean, uh, that 
that's very helpful. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing to think about on that is uh, if you're in state court, you're only going to have 10 days from the, uh, from the, when the brief uh, that you're supporting is filed to get your amicus brief done. In federal court, it's even less time. It's only seven days. So if you, for the first time, are trying to craft your brief after reading the party's brief, that's too late. You're not going to have enough time. So you really need to have some sense uh, of the party's brief before it's filed. You know, the ideal situation would be if you could get advanced drafts from the party that you're supporting, um, you, you know, or if they could at least talk to you on the phone about what their brief is going to be like because you don't, you don't want to just repeat their brief. And if you're stuck with only like federal court, you only have seven days, that could become a real time crunch. So, yeah, the, the, the more talk beforehand, the better. Today's show is sponsored by Commercial Surety Bond Agency, the nation's leading surety agency specializing in supersedious bonds. If you have a client needing to stay enforcement of a judgment in Florida or any other state or federal court, contact Commercial Surety. They can be reached at www.commercialsurety.com or toll-free at 877-810-5525. Their contact info is always in the show notes. I'm really happy to have a great business partner like CSBA supporting the show. The next time a client needs a supersedious bond, please give CSBA a call. These folks are experts in this area. They'll guide you and your client through this process, giving you one less thing to worry about. Well, we've sort of already started talking about the rules. Let's let's talk about the rules a little bit. Um, let's start with with state court um, rule nine point three seven zero. I guess is the main rule on on uh, amicus briefs. What t- talk to us a little bit about the the, the procedure for fi- for getting approved and getting a brief filed? I, actually, let me just start with what I already talked about, um, which is not the. Is, is if you're in the if you're in the state supreme court, the Florida Supreme Court, um, there is a provision in the rule now that at the jurisdictional stage, um, you can file what's called a notice of intent to file amicus brief in the Supreme Court of Florida. It's subsection D of the rule, and um, this is just a one page document. As a matter of fact, it says in the rule, it shall not exceed one page. And you can't make any argument. You're just notifying the Supreme Court of Florida that if it were to accept uh, jurisdiction of the case, that your client, the amicus, would intend to file uh, an amicus brief. And so that can be very helpful because if the court sees multiple uh, amici are inclined to participate in the case, that may cause them to see the case as more important and therefore uh, want to uh, accept jurisdiction. So that's, that's the, you know, that's been now, if you're, if you're already had jurisdiction accepted in the Supreme court or um, you're in the district court of appeal, um, the main thing is you, you got to seek leave, uh, uh, to file a brief, um, you're, you're, and the rule sets it out. You have to uh, you have to state the interests of your client. You have to say the particular issue to be addressed and how 
uh, the amicus brief would assist the court in uh, disposing of the case. And then you also have to say whether the parties consent to the filing of the amicus brief. Those all have to be in your motion. I think the best practice is to file your motion for leave well before the deadline for the service of the brief. Um, sometimes the courts deny these motions. So you'd hate to spend all this time drafting a brief and then uh, file your motion with the brief and then the motion gets denied. Um, now they rarely deny it, but it, it happens occasionally. So, if, you know, the earlier you can file your motion for leave, the better. Um, uh, and then as far as uh, the, the brief, as I said before, is due uh, 10 days after the brief of the party whom you are uh, supporting. And um, and it's important to keep in mind as an amicus, you're not going to get to do a reply brief. So you're either going to file it 10 days after the initial brief if you, if you support the appellant or 10 days after the answer brief if you support the appellee. Uh, and then I guess the last thing on the rule is um, – it's in subsection B. You're, you got a 20 page uh, page limit. Um, yeah, you uh, you must identify the, in your on the cover the party or parties you're supporting. You must have a concise statement of the identity of the amicus and its interest in the case. And there's no need to have a statement of the case or facts. Um, you really should just dive right into your argument because that's the statement of the case and facts will be in the party's brief. And it's, it says specifically in the rule, uh, shall admit a statement of the case and facts. I was just going to say it's interesting when I read the rule now carefully when I'm looking at while you're looking at it, the, the requirement that you identify what party you're supporting, but you don't necessarily have to be supporting a party, right? So I guess the answer to that could be neither, but <laughs> you can yeah, be you an amicus and not support either party. That's correct. You can, you can, and occasionally you see that. And um, uh, though, if you are in support of neither party, you, you get the earlier deadline. You got to file your brief ten days mm -hmm. after uh, the initial brief. Um, and I, I, we also the other thing in the rule, uh, it, which we haven't discussed, is there are provisions if to come in at the rehearing stage. Um, uh, there used to be nothing in the rule about that. It used to be just case law. Uh, but, and that happens a fair amount because, y you know, we don't, you can't monitor all these dockets and you don't know when an opinion is going to come out, if it's going to be important. But all of a sudden you read this district court of appeal opinion, there were no, there was no amicus participation and you realize it's going to impact your client. And so you might want to then, at that point, uh, try to get involved at the rehearing stage, though that's always a difficult stage to get involved in at that point. Right. The, the uh, horse is sort of out of the barn at that point. But I guess, you know, like you said, it's not unreasonable to think that maybe when your, your client who wants to be uh, involved finds out. But it is a little late in the process for sure. It's, it's late in the process. I think really at that point, the main thing you could try to do as an amicus is point out to the court that some of it's – you're probably not going to change the result of the case. But you might be able to point out that some of the language in the opinion is 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 overbroad or could be misconstrued and ask the court to 
to clarify that or to or to use different language in the opinion. And I have seen courts uh, change their opinion based on an, a, a rehearing amicus stage. I, I don't know if I've ever seen a court change the actual outcome based on the amicus rehearing. Now, how how much different is this in federal court, uh, say in the 11th Circuit? Yeah, so in federal court, um, wh- whatever circuit you're in, uh, including the 11th, uh, you're going to be governed by Federal Rule of Appellate Procedure 29. Um, uh, the one thing there uh, to know, which is pretty rare, but if you if you happen to be representing the United States of America or one of its agencies or a state, um, you can file your amicus brief without consent of the parties or leave of the court. So those those entities don't need to seek leave. Um, uh, uh, any uh, any if you're not representing a, a state or the United States. Um, then you do have to seek leave of the court. You, it does stay in the rule that the, you can file a brief if you have the consent of all the parties, but it also says that um, the, the Court of Appeals doesn't have to ac- accept it. It's best to to uh, to get the consent of the parties uh, and then seek leave of the court. And then a lot of the other things are frankly the same after that. The I guess the one difference on the timing is it's seven days rather than ten after the brief that you support. Pretty much everything else is is largely the same. Uh, I mean, you uh, you do you need to uh, in your motion for leave identify the movement's interests, and you got to say why an amicus brief is desirable and why the matters asserted are relevant to the case. There, unlike state court, that's not a page limit. There is a word limit, and I am forgetting the exact word, word limit right now. That's right. It's one half the maximum length of the party's principal brief. So right now in federal court, a party's principal brief is 13,000 words. So that means you have 6,500 words for an amicus brief. Still a lot of words. <laughs> yeah, it's it's plenty of time. That's, the, that's really um, the... That's the same as a reply brief. So you, you, it's plenty of words. And there are there are also provisions for uh, coming in at the rehearing stage. Uh, I actually recently did that in the, in the first circuit of all places. And there, the, the brief on the rehearing stage, though, is pretty short. It's 2,600 words. So you don't, you don't have a lot at the rehearing stage. Now, I noticed that this rule, uh, the federal rule specifically, says that uh, an amicus may participate in oral argument with the court's permission. Do you do you see that happen very much in the in the circuit courts? No, no, not very much. Uh, I'm not sure I've ever I've never noticed that. Yeah, I I don't. I first of all, I I think the problem you would have is that uh, I think any party would object to that because it's probably going to cut into a party's time. Um, I don't know if it's too effective. Really, the only place where I you commonly see amicus participation at oral argument is at the Supreme Court of the United States, where right. the government is often a participant in oral argument. I mean, right, Solicitor General. Right. They, in many cases, are allowed to participate in oral argument, but 
outside of that, it's pretty rare for an amicus to do it. I will say um, I did <laughs> – I have had one – I remember. I have had one case in my career um, where there was an amicus supporting me where I – and I normally think it's a bad idea to divide oral argument. I think it's not smart. I think you should have one advocate for each side. And so I mm -hmm. think that's another reason you generally don't want to have uh, Miki's counsel uh, do that. But I, I had a very unusual case where effectively my, my client was an individual, but the entire case turned on the rights of the Navajo Nation. And the lawyer for the Navajo Nation who had filed an amicus brief was willing to fly from New Mexico to Florida to come to the oral argument and, and uh, ask for permission to uh, appear. And I agreed, and it was very effective. Because in that, because the legal issue involved, though it, it directly impacted my client, the precedent was going to have a huge impact on the on Indian tribes in general, and in particular on the Navajo Nation, and so it made sense. But that's kind of an exception. Most of the time, it doesn't make sense to me to have the amicus participate in oral argument. But so I have seen it once at a circuit court appeal. Now that I thought about it, that that the amicus argued. Now, what about do different rules apply for the U.S. Supreme Court? There are different rules. The Supreme Court has its own rules on amicus. The main thing. Uh, there is if you're a party, um, you're going to want to make a decision. Uh, you can file basically a blanket consent, and that really can can be convenient because, as I said, in, in Supreme Court litigation, you may have 30, 40, 50 amicus briefs, and if you file the blanket consent, then you don't have to each time somebody calls your office and tell them, yes, it's okay. <laughs> Though I've dealt with people on that who think it's better not to give the blanket consent because that way you can keep track of who's filing amicus briefs. But, you, you know, that's one, one difference, I think, because you're just going to have a, a volume such. The, uh, the time limit is the same. It's, uh, it's seven days after the brief. Um, and the other big difference at the U.S. Supreme Court is the amicus briefs at the jurisdictional stage. So I think I mentioned at the Florida Supreme Court, you can file that one-page notice, but you can't make any argument. In the U.S. Supreme Court, you amicus can file uh, briefs in support of a petition for writ of certiori. And that is very common nowadays. Uh, it helps to boost the chances of the petitioner to get uh, uh, the petition granted. And so the petitioner will often have several amicus briefs in support. On the flip side, if you're the respondent, you don't want to have any amicus briefs because <laughs> you're trying to say it's not an important case. So why would you have a bunch of amicus come in and send a counter signal? Yeah, in the case that uh, that I was involved in recently, the U.S. Supreme Court, we did file a blanket uh, consent and there was a number on each side of our case. I, I forget, but at least uh, ten or so, I think, on each side. It was it was pretty amazing. Both both from some individuals, like you had mentioned. I think one was a law professor to organizations that you know that, that profess to have some sort of interest in the way the law turned. It's it is interesting. Um, 
you know, yeah, at that I level. think it's common nowadays for people to do the Commons consent. In the case I was involved in, the my co-counsel didn't recommend we not do that, and we didn't do it. I'm not so sure that was the right choice, uh, but I think you look a little silly if you deny consent to anybody, and we never did. We just wanted to know who was going to be filing the, the briefs. Um, the rule, by the way, it's a pretty, it's rule 37. It is. So the Supreme court, as I think everybody knows, has its own rules separate from the federal rules of appellate procedure. And, um, it's a pretty detailed rule. So I won't go in all that, but if you're one thing, I, as far as timing, I mentioned the seven day time period is for the, uh, briefs on the merits once after jurisdiction is accepted. But if you're, if you're going to file an amicus brief in support of a petition, it's 30 days after the case is placed on the docket or a response is called for by the court, whichever is later. And that time will not be extended, says that in the rule. So uh, if you're looking at filing a petition for cert and you want to get amicus lined up, you really need to work that in advance because it's pretty hard once you file your petition to then get a bunch of support within the next 30 days. No, that's a, a great point. Rule 37 of the, um, the the rules, Supreme Court rules, is it's a lot more dense than the other two rules we've talked about. There's a lot to, of information to unpack in there. So anybody who's thinking about that definitely needs to take a look at that rule and not uh, not rely on the federal rule because things are a little bit different uh, in the Supreme Court, right. as you would expect. Well, that's great. I think, uh, I don't know, is there anything else we should talk about uh, as it relates to amicus briefs or amicus no, briefs? No, um, if anybody out there wants to uh, call uh, for uh, additional points, I'm, I'm happy to uh, talk. I think it is an interesting part of the practice, and I think if done correctly, it can be of help to the court and to uh, amicus clients and to the parties. On the flip side, if it just turns out to be a brief that parrots the arguments of the parties, it's very unhelpful, and and that would that would probably lead courts to not allow amicus. So I think we all have to, as appellate lawyers, we need to you know uh, we 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 need to be guarded in in when we file amicus briefs. We need to make sure we're doing something that will be helpful to the court, so that that permission is still granted. Yeah, that's one of the things I think is fascinating about about amicus as a practice is that there are multiple levels of strategy that you have to consider. You know, it's not just like writing a principal brief. You, you know, all the things we've talked about today. You know, whether you should, whether it makes sense to have a brief or not, are you calling too much attention to? You know, a particular issue that you're trying to de-emphasize is not being of exceptional public importance. There's there's a lot of chess pieces to move and a lot of strategy that makes it uh, yes, interesting. Yes, I agree. Yeah, definitely. Very interesting. And and it is, I think it is like a chess chess match, trying to figure out what you want to do. Lots of, got to look at all the pieces and see how the next move may be, next several moves may be. Well, Brian, if people need to get a hold of you or want to get a hold of you, what's the best way? You could send me an email, which I think is in the materials. It's it's bgowdy at appellate-firm.com. You could check out our webpage, appellate-firm.com, or you can just call our office, which is at 904-350-0075. 
So I got to ask you, you have a great URL for your website, appellatefirm.com. How did you, uh, were you just an early, uh, early on the stick to get that or what's the story? Do you know? So I've been here now 13 years and the firm was actually founded uh, by some other folks before me. Uh, and so they, they got it uh, back in, I think, 2002. So, and I inherited it when I got, uh, when I came over to this firm in the late uh, part of the 2000s and uh, second half of the 2000s, so uh, and we've just kept it. But uh, yeah, no, it's a good it's a good thing. Though, no, if I had anything to do over, I think I wish I could get the hyphen out of there because people mess that up all the time. <laughs> so anyway, but it's a right. good it's a good uh, it's right. a good name. Yeah, I have a URL. I think it's it might be Florida-Appeals.com that I don't use. Uh, but I own for, you know, someday if I need it. But <laughs> the hyphen does. Uh, yeah, maybe I'll give you a call. Sometimes. Maybe we got to purchase it from you. So. <laughs> well, if anybody wants it, it's for sale. We'll, we'll figure I'll it out. Keep that in mind. <laughs> but thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I uh, hope this has been interesting for everyone listening. Brian, thanks so much for being on the podcast. So I'm sure at some point we'll, we'll find a reason to have you back. But I really do appreciate your time. And, uh, you know, sharing, sharing your wisdom with the Absolutely. audience. Thank you, Dwayne. Thanks to Brian Gowdy for being my guest on the Issues on Appeal podcast. Remember, podcasts are never legal advice. Nothing that I say or my guests say should be interpreted as legal advice for any particular situation. That being said, if you're a lawyer who needs the help of an appellate lawyer, I'm happy to try and help you. You can contact me at Issues on Appeal on Twitter or at my professional email, ddaiker at shoemaker.com. My contact info is always in the show notes, which are available in your podcast player or on our website, issuesonappeal.com. And please consider using our sponsor, Commercial Surety Bond Agency, for your client's appellate bond needs. Their contact information is in the show notes. Please take a moment now and add it to your contacts so that you're ready when a client needs a supersedious bond. I've got another great show coming up in two weeks. And as always, thank you for considering this week's Issues on Appeal.